It is my honor to, uh, to continue our series uh, called Stories Jesus Told. Um, I have been dying to preach this word, if I'm being really honest with you. Uh, the moment I saw uh, that I saw this um, on our preaching calendar, I was thinking I was either going to uh, use this parable or the parable of the unrighteous judge. Um, and largely because there's, there's a point in each one of these parables that is, how many of you have ever had like a passage of scripture that you have no idea what it means and it feels unfair to you, so you kind of just pass over it, right? That's kind of, we're going to go to the parable of the wedding feast today. This is out of Matthew chapter 22, if you want to go there with me. But before we get into that, how many of you have ever showed up at an event or party underdressed? Like, they didn't put like on the thing that it was black tie? Or you went to an event that you've gone, you know, that you've gone to a similar event in the past and you overdressed thinking it was like that one. And then you show up and you're like, everybody's in plaid and flannel and you're like in a tux. And all of a sudden, even though you're really, really like, you're, you're looking sharp, you're also feeling a little uncomfortable. <laughs> like there's not really a universally accepted, like this can go anywhere outfit. Right? Like, we'd like to believe that. We'd like to believe that like, there's something that we can wear that's appropriate for every situation. But the reality is, you wouldn't go to a gala in your sweatpants, and you wouldn't go to bed in a tux. Right? Like, there's nothing that you have in your closet that's going to be universally acceptable everywhere. You know, I've got this. We don't have it. You know, <laughs> I remember one time, this is a number of years ago, um, we had a, a first-time visitor come to church. And man, that dude was decked out. Like, he had a full, like, sharp-dressed man feel to him. And he walked in the doors, and I remember seeing his eyes go wide. Because he's looking around, and it's just a bunch of lumberjacks all over the place. <laughs> and afterwards, he came and talked to me, and he said, he said, Pastor, um, do y'all wear suits here? And I said, um, sometimes on Easter, <laughs> occasionally. He's like, oh, okay. The next week, he showed up with just a regular, like, collared shirt. <laughs> you know, we don't have, like, what you would call, like, a really strong dress code. I, I mean, like, there's a couple of things that, that, that I will or won't wear on the platform, but I've got this, my aunt a number of years ago, by, by the way, hi, auntie, if you're watching, um, my aunt gave me a custom Jimmy Graham sweatshirt when Jimmy Graham was one of my favorite players when he was on the Seahawks, and then he left the Seahawks, and in revenge... I started using that sweater as my work sweater. And so like at this point in time, that thing's got paint all over it. It's got like drywall flakes all over it. Like the, the front pocket is like halfway ripped out of it. But you know what? When I'm working, that's still a very functional sweatshirt. When I was getting dressed this morning, you know what I never considered? I never considered pulling out the manky Jimmy Graham sweatshirt. Because even though we don't necessarily have this really strict dress code here, I know what's appropriate and what's not. Listen, I'm going to talk to you this morning from the scripture. We're going to go about 14 verses. By the way, if you've never heard me preach, I use a lot of scripture, okay? So just bear with me. It'll be up on the Sky Bible if you didn't bring your own. So starting in, uh, in verse 1, this is how it goes. It says, once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. 
He sent his, sermon, his servants to summon those invited to the banquet. I'm going to stop right here and give a brief explanation of why this is important. Listen, if you invite me to your wedding, I mean, you send out invites to a wedding, you're very specific about when the wedding is and where it is and oftentimes what to wear. Like if you're gonna if you're gonna like really like double down on like this is gonna be a fancy wedding, then what, what do you put on it? Black tie only. Right? Like you're very you're very clear about this. In Jewish culture, it was a lot different than ours. What would happen is, is that a man would be betrothed to his to his wife, and at that, at that point, wedding invitations would go out, but here's the thing. They would go out and then they would begin to prepare for the feast. And whenever the feast was ready, that was when servants went out to all those who had already said they're going to come and say, now come, everything is prepared. The point of it was, is that it was so important. It was so important that you would, that you would go to a place that you, would, that you accepted this invitation, that you would drop anything and everything to be there for this wedding. So it wasn't like you couldn't just put on your calendar that, you know, six months from now I'm going to this wonderful wedding. It was you're saying yes, and that no matter when it's ready, you're ready to drop everything and go to this wedding. I mean, like, just as an aside, for those of you who, like, ask for RSVPs, how much of a bummer is it when people that RSVP don't show up? Like, I planned for you, dog. Like, I had a specific, like, giveaway bag for you. Thank you. That was nice. Listen, okay, here we go. Okay, but they didn't want to come. Again, he sent out other servants and said, tell those who are invited, I want you to consider this, okay? Just like, come with me here. The banquet is set. The tables are ready. And at the last moment, like he's having to send out messengers to try and coax these people to come to this banquet because it's for them. They already said they were coming. He sent out other servants and said, listen, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went away. One to his own farm, another to his business, while the rest, man, this gets crazy quick. While the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged, and he sent out his troops, killed those murderers, and burned down their city. Whew. Jesus, I thought you didn't judge anyone. <laughs> then he told his servants, the banquet is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Go then to where the road exits the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. So those servants went out on the roads and gathered everyone they found. This, this next phrase, I want you to gather this in your mind here. Both evil and good. We're going to get to that later on in the, in, in the sermon, but I want you to get this in your mind. Both evil and good. The wedding banquet was filled with guests. When the king came in to see the guests... <laughs> He saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. So he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? He thought maybe it was a mistake. The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him out into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. 
Okay, so something to know about me. I'm not a huge fan of dressing up, which is like, it's one of the things about a wedding for me that I struggle with. But I, but I will tell you right now, if you invite me to your wedding, I will not punch you. Like, I mean, these people were serious. They're like, get out of my face with that wedding invitation, right? <laughs> okay, as we, as, we, as we read this, I want you to remember, and I say this a lot, but I, I say it a lot because I want you to understand it. The Bible was written for us, but not to us. Which means that we can't just take ourselves and immediately impart ourselves into the text as though the text was meant for us. It was meant for a people who were living on the earth at that time. This is a parable that is actually a prophetic parable. It's a parable about the rejection of Christ by his own people and the message of the kingdom being extended to the Gentiles. It was a warning of judgment on those who rejected the invitation of the kingdom. And it was a reminder that the prophets that that generation celebrated had been murdered by their ancestors. In Matthew 21 and 22, there are three parables that all have the same general vibe. And I want you to be reminded that when we read scripture, we don't read scripture singularly or individually. See, Matthew 21, 22, 23, 24, and 25 are all interconnected. They're all one sermon. They're leading up to Jesus giving this prophetic declaration in 24 about the destruction of Jerusalem. That's why in this parable, it says, so he sent his troops to go kill those murderers and destroy their city. He did that in 70 AD. The Lord used the Roman Empire to destroy the city of Jerusalem. In judgment, Jesus said this in Matthew 24, he said, he said that all the blood of the saints and prophets will be visited on this generation. Why? Because the final word from God was his son Jesus. And he was soundly rejected. There are three parables, though, in Matthew 21 and 22 that all have the same feel. Those who obey inherit. Those who rebel are punished. Listen, I got to remind somebody there's no third road. There's no third road. I, there, there are a lot of people out there that because they view themselves as being good, I'm a good person. Maybe I can be neutral with God. Dude, there is no neutrality between light and darkness. There is no neutrality. There's light or there is darkness. You cannot be both. But can I tell you the verse that's always tripped me up? And this is kind of where we're going to land on today. It's Matthew 12, uh, 22, 12 to 14. Listen to this. So he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. The king told his attendants, you know, let's just find this guy some new clothes and just let him put them on real quick. No, no, he says, tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are invited, but few are chosen. I don't know about you, but like for years reading this, you know, because I, I try to read the Bible all the way through once a year. And so every year I get to these points in scripture where I'm like, that kind of, I don't know, that kind of seems unfair to me. I mean, because let's be honest, what did they do? Like after all the other people rebelled and did their thing and their city was destroyed. And like, I mean, the banquet is still ready. And the master's like, okay, here's what you're going to do. Get anyone to come right this second. It's already come right now. It didn't say he gave them time to run home real quick and change. It didn't, I mean, like, we're talking about people living in the highways and byways and the hedges. These are poor people. 
And so I was like, I was thinking to myself, man, this just seems really unfair. Until I actually started studying. St. Augustine said it this way. He said, the culture of the era, if someone was of, of, a, of a higher wealth or, or, or social standing, when they would invite someone of a lower station to an event or a banquet or a wedding, the invitation would come with a set of clothes. The point is, is that the king sent out an invitation knowing that the people that he was bringing in would not actually have the means to go out and buy new clothing. And so what I thought was an injustice on the part of the king, it actually turns out that the real issue was that the man didn't care enough that he'd been invited to the king's table to even put on the outfit that had been given to him so he could do so. Listen, if I got invited to the governor's house today, even if I didn't like the governor, I wouldn't show up like this. I wouldn't be like, hey, check out these new Jordans. <laughs> I'd probably wear a suit because I got invited to the governor's house. Like that's an honor, even if you don't necessarily like the person in office. This guy that just got pulled out from under the hedges and accepted the invitation because he wanted the food, didn't bother to put on the clothes that the king bought for him so he could attend. Here's the big idea. Practical righteousness starts with knowing what an honor it is to be invited to a table you have no business sitting at. Dude, can I tell you something? Jesus doesn't owe you anything. The Father doesn't owe you anything. The Spirit doesn't owe you anything. We are at fault, not Him. And yet He chose, He chose to invite you and I to a table that we had no business being at because he loves us and he loves his son. You know, it reminded me of this story in 2 Samuel chapter 19. We're going we're to go there real quick. This is verses 26 to 30, but I'm going to set the story up before we read it. This is the second time in Scripture that we see the person uh, Mephibosheth. Ooh, say that five times fast. It's the second time in Scripture that we see the name Mephibosheth. For those of you who know, just come with me, but for those of you who don't know, Mephibosheth was the son of King, or excuse me, the grandson of King Saul and the son of his son, Jonathan, who was David's best friend before his death. Now, for, for the, you guys that don't know much about ancient history, at that point in time, most of the time when one king would take over for another king, like not in a good way, the new king would establish his throne by killing all of the remaining family members of the previous king. Sometimes, if they were particularly evil, they would even kill their own family members to make sure that nobody else had a claim to the throne. David, because he had made a covenant with Jonathan of peace, after his throne was established, he actually said, he said, is there anyone of the household of Saul that I can bless? And the only person's name was mentioned was Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. When he was summoned before the king, he expected to die. That was what he was expecting. What happened was David gave him back all of his family's lands and then said this to him, and it's something that blows me away. He says, for the rest of your life, you'll sit at my table to eat. He made him part of his family. That's what that meant. 
He made him part of his family. Later on, David had to flee Jerusalem because his son Absalom had rebelled. When David was returning to the city, the servant of Mephibosheth, a man named Ziba, slandered him to the king and basically told him, oh king, Mephibosheth is kind of the worst. He didn't even go with you when you left Jerusalem. And so Mephibosheth was summoned before the king and was asked, why didn't you come with me? This is his reply in verse 26. He said, he answered, my lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. I'm going to stop just right there for a second. What he's saying is, I had no ability to take care of myself. That was what Ziba was for. And instead of saddling a donkey for me, he saddled the donkey for himself and he left me here. In fact, the, the scripture before this says that he neither ate nor drank nor slept nor bathed while the king was gone because he was so worried about David. Moving on, he says, he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. Listen to this part here. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I than to cry to the king? And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth, listen to this. And Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let him take it all since the Lord my king has come safely home. Okay, can I, can I just tell you what happened right there? David, instead of just saying to Mephibosheth, oh man, everything was rightfully or you know, un unrighteously taken from you. Yeah, you can have it all back. Effectively, what he said was, well, you've been here with me and Ziba has been working your land, so let's just divide the land between both of you. That'll make sense. And instead of going to the courts or, you know, pleading with the king anymore, what does Mephibosheth say? He says, you know what? Let him have it all. Because all I want is you. I'm never leaving your table anyway. I don't need your blessings. I just want you. Because Mephibosheth understood how unworthy he was to sit at David's table. How much more are we unworthy to sit at the table of Jesus? As long as I have you, I'm good, is what Mephibosheth said. Can I ask, is that what we would say to the Lord too? What if I didn't have all your blessings? What if I didn't have all your many promises? What if all I had was you weeping with me in my disaster? What if all I had was you? What if you didn't fix everything? What if you didn't heal every disease? What if all I had was you? Would I complain and whine about it? Or would I say like Mephibosheth, take it all as long as I have a seat at your table? Just a couple of thoughts before we close up here. The first one, this is going to blow some people's minds here. God is holy. God is holy. 
Listen, it seems in our day and age, if I were to ask what the primary attribute of God or what's the most important part of his character, I think a lot of people would probably say, oh, like God is love. Like, gosh, God is love, man. He just like loves people. It's awesome. Can I tell you how many times in scripture the Bible says that God is love? It's like two or three times. Can I tell you how many times in scripture he's attributed to being holy? Over 600. If the primary attribute of God was love, then the two times in scripture where we see the angels revolving around the throne of God, continuously singing a song of praise to him, we would hear, loving, loving, loving is the Lord God Almighty. But we don't. We hear, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The weight of scripture demands that we see God. Can I tell you what scripture is? Scripture is the revelation of God to us by himself. You cannot know God outside of scripture. You cannot say, well, God is this way, even though scripture says he's this way. No, you don't get to do that because you don't get to tell me who I am. Let me put it this way. Only I can reveal myself fully to you. You cannot say, well, this is who you are because I've seen you in action three times. And this is what I know you to be. No, friend, you don't know me. Not like that. Unless I choose to reveal myself to you, you don't know me. We cannot know God unless he reveals himself to us, and he revealed himself to us in Scripture, which means I don't get to take Scripture and say, well, that's not really God, though, right? Because, like, I was told that God was love and stuff. Somebody told me that at some point. Yeah, man, he is. But can I tell you, you cannot understand the love of God until you understand the holiness of God. See, John 3, 16, let me tell you this. His greatest love is shown by his holiness. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. See, we kind of read that like, for God so loved the world that he just like forgive everybody's sins. No. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I want to remind you of the righteousness that you have in Christ and what it cost him to give it to you. You see, God's desire was to restore relationship with mankind, but his holiness demanded a mitigation for our sin and his love sent his son in our place to satisfy the demands of his holiness. God's holiness does not bow to his love. God's holiness does not bow to his love. His love expresses the level of his holiness. God couldn't just say, because I love you, I'm just going to go ahead and forgive your sins and everyone's fine. No, because he loved you so much, he had to send the only thing that could be the propitiation for your sin, which was Jesus. And I got to tell you, with that knowledge, it doesn't actually bother me that much that the king took the guy who refused to get dressed up in the righteousness he had given and tossed him out. Do you see what I'm saying here? Sometimes because we don't understand the depth, the, the depth and the level of his holiness, we forget how much the sacrifice was. Listen, you can slander me all day long. You can send me angry emails. I get a lot of them. You can send me all sorts of stuff, and I can, like, can kind of take it. I'm like, oh, that one hurt a little bit. Okay, that was, you know, not going to lie, that hurt. But man, friend, you start selling me stuff about my son. 
you're going to see a different animal come out. Now imagine a father who loved a rebellious people so much that he was willing to give his own son on, your, your, on our behalf. And then we have the audacity to show up at the wedding feast without the clothes that his blood paid for. Look, like there are seasons in the church where preaching shifts in order to highlight an attribute of God that has been neglected in our eyes. You know, in the 60s and 70s, there was a whole movement of people. The church was so judgmental that people didn't believe that God loved them anymore. And so there's this whole shift towards seeing Jesus as the God of love. And it's awesome, right? Like, it's so wonderful to know the love of God in Christ. But I'll be honest with you, a lot of the corruption and a lot of the compromise that we are seeing in churches today is not because people have gotten worse. It's because our view of God has become low. Our view of his holiness has gotten, has gotten so into the cellar that we think that his holiness is just sort of like kind of important. No, his holiness was important to sacrifice Jesus for. This is why Peter, you know, the man in the corner showed a kind of spiritual laziness that is often seen in the church. Where instead of just putting on the righteousness and walking in the righteousness that he was given, he was just like, ah, these clothes probably aren't that important. God will forgive me if I just do this. God will forgive me if I do that. God will keep forgiving me if I do this. Is it true? Sure. But at some point in time, you're going to be found in the corner. That's why Peter said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Like our God is love conditioned minds are like, what? What do you mean fear and trembling? I thought we weren't supposed to be afraid. Friend, can I tell you what the fear, okay. All right. Can I tell you what the fear of God is? Okay, the fear of God is both a reverence this way. What, what, what I've been taught a lot of times about the fear of God is that the fear of God is a fear of disappointment. That's true. Like, I don't want to disappoint God. I'm afraid of like, you know, like I was one of those kids that some, some of you might, might be like this. My brother was not. <laughs> um, I was one of those kids where if my dad told me I'm disappointed in you, I'd be like, oh man, this is the worst, you know? But that's not the totality of the fear of God. Ultimately, at the end of it, the fear of God is the fear of correction, the fear of punishment. There's a real chastisement for rejection of who God is and what he's done. Which brings me to my next point. Number two, righteousness is positional and practical. It's positional and practical. Okay, let's go back to this, this verse real quick, real quick. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without the wedding clothes? The man was speechless. The king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. You might ask me, Pastor Joel, why aren't we talking about the rest of this parable? Like, why are we hammering on these like two or three verses? Because the first part of the parable isn't for me. I'm in the wedding feast. I'm in the banquet. I was the one his servants found in the highway, in the byway, the beggar by the roadside found by those who were searching. 
Listen, friend, you are invited to put on the righteousness that is purchased for you by Christ. I'm going to give this analogy because I think it's a good one and I'm going to keep doing it. How many of you have ever seen somebody drive on the wrong side of the road or you've been that person? <laughs> okay, so I live, I live pretty close to downtown Newport, so I have the pleasure, the guilty pleasure, of uh, every, a couple times a summer it happens. Like I'll see somebody pull out the wrong way going down Washington, and I'm like, I'm just like, I just watch them. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll honk the horn, like warn them, you know, but it's just, it's funny. Every time I, I see that, I'm like, ah, that person's not from around here, right? <laughs> but I want you to imagine, like, so I was down, I was down driving um, on the LA freeway, which I do not advise. It was like the scariest moment of my life. I'm going like, I'm going like 70 miles an hour, like, like, sorry, it was a 70 mile an hour zone. I was going almost 80 miles an hour. Cars were blowing by me on the left side angrily at like 95 miles an hour. And this is like, there's those moments where like you stop being all merciful and you're like, there should be a cop somewhere around here. You need to be busted, buddy. <laughs> but I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine positional righteousness like this. You are driving the wrong way on the LA freeway. There is a median 100 miles high that you will never get over no matter how hard you try. And no matter how good or bad a driver you think you are, friend, I can tell you, if you're going the wrong way on a one way, you will eventually get into a head-on collision and it's not gonna be pretty. Number one, you're already driving illegally. So even if you manage to weave in and out of traffic and not destroy yourself, you're still wrong. And if you just lean into it and you're just like, it's going to go anyway, woo, and just like run into somebody, then double wrong. But either way you look at it, you are in the wrong position. The love of God in Christ picked your vehicle up and took it over the median and put you into the right lane. That's what positional righteousness is, that God picked you up and he literally turned you around. But how many of you realize that even people driving in the right lane are all can be bad drivers? Practical righteousness is me learning how to drive better. Like, we have got to stop running into cars, running into medians, running into all sorts of stuff and just saying, well, God will forgive me. Yeah, he'll forgive you, but maybe you just start driving better. Think about what you're doing. Put on righteousness. Put on right relationship. Remind yourself what it costs for you to wear what you are wearing. What's interesting here is that in, in, in verse 11, it says that there were those invited to the feast who were both good and evil. Meaning in the eyes of men, they either lived a good life or an evil one. Can I tell you who some of the hardest people in the world to reach the gospel for are? People who are convinced they're good. People who are convinced they're good because they haven't wrecked yet. Friend, I gotta tell you, I don't care if you think you're good or you believe you're evil, you're still in the hedges and you are still in need of an invitation and that you still need to wear those clothes to the feast. You do not get to define goodness because God already defined it. And what the Bible tells me is that there is no one good, not even one, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. <laughs> now, am I preaching this morning, man? Okay. 
Whether you feel like you're good or you're evil, you've still got to wear the right clothes to be accepted at the wedding. And those clothes didn't come from your effort. They came from the king. And they're soaked in the blood of his son. And unless you're wearing that, friend, you are the person in the corner. I am the person in the corner. We are the person in the corner. And the thing is that all it really takes is the remind. Can I tell you, Pastor Jeff said this last week, and I gotta, I gotta remind you that repentance is not a bad word. We've gotta stop thinking to ourselves, well, uh, uh, repent, well, I gotta be careful about that word. I wanna offend anybody. Okay, I, you know what? I do wanna offend you. If you're offended by the word repent, I'm sorry, dude. I was offended before I was saved too. But the reality is, is that the entrance to the kingdom of heaven is repent. Which means turn around. Recognize that you were going the wrong way. It's as it's, it's easy as saying, Father, I'm sorry. I'm back. Help me do it different. Father, I'm sorry. I'm back. Give me the strength to do it different. Listen, none of us are going to be perfect even after we're wearing the clothes. The point is not being perfect. The point is getting back up. The Bible says that a righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up. Can I tell somebody in the room who has fallen down, it's time for you to get back up now. It's time for you to get back up. There's no shame in getting up. There's only shame in staying down. Sometimes I have to remind myself that I'm the, Christ, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ so that I can live like the righteousness of God in Christ. My works and my behavior don't produce my salvation. Hear, hear, hear me. I'm going to say this again. My works and my behavior do not produce my salvation. They prove my salvation. They prove it. How many of you ever found that wearing clothes that don't fit is annoying? That's why a lot of us don't even like going clothes shopping. Because like, you ever notice that even when you know your size, you don't know your size? Like you go get the same size of jeans, but in a different company, and you're like, oh, <laughs> that's not quite my fit, is it? Listen, <laughs> listen, you know, like for those of you guys have, no, like, have heard me preach before, like I've struggled with my weight most of my adult life. You know, I grew up as a sports kid, you know, blowing like 8,000 calories a day, going out hunting, doing all kinds of stuff. And like when, you, when you're like burning a million calories a day and you're a kid, like you can literally eat whatever you want and there's like no problems. But then I got into college and a lot of that stuff ended and I realized that I didn't know how to eat very well. Well, I mean, I knew how to eat, okay? <laughs> But as, you know, as somebody who's, who's kind of had this like up and down battle with, with, with weight loss and weight gain, what you end up doing is you, you kind of keep old clothes around. And you know what you convince yourself of? You convince yourself in six months, I'm gonna fit back into this thing, right? Instead of just realizing that in six months it's gonna be out of style and you're not gonna wanna wear it anyway. But I remember a couple, a couple of weeks ago, um, I, I accidentally grabbed a pair of pants that I thought were like ones that I'm wearing now. And I like put them on and I was like, Whoop! <laughs> oh gosh. And I managed to get them buttoned, but then I was like walking around like, this is not working. <laughs> this isn't good, right? And so I finally just went home and changed. Cause I was like, you know, I could just, I could go around identifying as skinny. <laughs> or, or I could just go home and change and be comfortable. 
Like, listen, can I tell you in the room today that if you're a Christian, the most comfortable life you will live is a life of righteousness. Righteousness fits you. Living in sin is like is like walking around with clothes that are two sizes too short, two sizes too small. It's uncomfortable and you hate it and you want out of it anyway. So friend, this is your invitation. Put back on the clothes that fit. You don't have to keep living like this. See, you've already been blood-bought. You've already been set free. You've already been elevated. You're already the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And all you have to do is put on the right clothes. Come on, why don't you stand on your feet with me today? Here's what we're going to do all over this place. I'm going to ask two questions. The first one is, do you know Jesus? Do you know If you don't know Jesus, this question is for you. Do you want to follow him? So let me tell you, what you're living in today is so much farther below what God has for you. Friend, you are the person in the hedge. You're the person in the highway, in the byway. And God wants to raise you up to his own table. He wants you to sit with him. He wants you to eat with him. He wants you to celebrate with him. And all it's going to take for you is to repent. And realize that the clothes that you have on are not the kind that are going to get you into the wedding feast. But here's the beauty of it. You don't have to do anything that Jesus hasn't already done. You don't have to go up on the cross. Aside from crucifying yourself daily. Different sermon. (laughs) Jesus did it for you. He purchased the outfit already. He purchased the, the, the beauty of salvation for you. Your entrance to the kingdom, your entrance to the wedding feast is simply to say, Jesus, I repent. I want to come into the feast. If that's you today, if that's you today, and you just want to say, Jesus, I repent, I want to come into the feast. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. I'd like to pray with you. Is there anybody in the house that today's your day of salvation? Today's the day that I say, that you say, Jesus, I want you. Thank you, Lord.